Ramble. I'm the type of person who's hyper aware of what I put in my body. I have a lot of food intolerances and it feels like every year I discover new ones. If you have allergies or IBS or you choose to avoid certain foods for personal reasons, you know the food FOMO is real and it's just not fun. A month ago, we went to Jeju Island, which is famous for pork, but because I'm allergic, I was just standing there watching everyone gobble up the food. And recently, I almost gave up morning coffee because I'm so sensitive to dairy these days and black coffee just does not hit the spot. Thankfully, I found out about minor figures and now I don't have to start my days on a bitter note. Literally, Minor Figures is an oat milk brand. They're 100% plant-based, carbon neutral, and B Corp certified. So not only do I get to enjoy my coffee, but I don't have to worry about anything irritating my stomach. There are no stabilizers or additives. And what I love is that Minor Figures Barista Oat really helps showcase the natural characteristics of the coffee. It's not just there to carry the coffee flavor, but it enhances it. So you know how at-home coffee never hits the spot like coffee shop coffee? With Minor Figures, it does. You can really taste the coffee versus the oat milk. It's delicious. You can buy their products online at us.minorfigures.com. You can also discover fun games, music playlists, and explore their store locator to see where you can buy Minor Figures near you. For my listeners in Denver and New York, Minor Figures is also now available at Whole Foods. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And we all kind of have a different word for this, but there's one site everyone in the world might be familiar with, an animal that has been used in folklores, tales, myths, stories, and now on cakes and pool floaties. You know what I'm talking about, the mystical unicorn. In recent depictions, it looks like a graceful white stallion horse with that unmistakable single head on its head single head on its head. (laughs) Yes, exactly. With the unmistakable single horn on its head and an air of mystery, intrigue, gentle knowledge, and power. Did you know that the ancient Chinese said unicorns are so gentle that they do not crush a single blade of grass when they walk? Who said this? Your brothers and your sisters from way back. I'm just kidding. The European myths from the Middle Ages, they said that unicorns are pure animals that are untouchable by men. Because men are the ones that want to capture a unicorn. A unicorn will only appear to approach a virgin maiden and lay its head on her lap. The unicorn symbolizes the spiritual creature that is almost too good for this world. A unicorn's horn is said to have curing powers, can cure even the worst diseases, the worst plagues, can even be used as an aphrodisiac. You're like, are unicorns even real? I guess even if you don't believe they are, they are seen as spiritual animals, spiritual guides and protectors to some. They remind us that there's strength in being gentle. Aggression is not the same as power or courage. That's what people say about unicorns. So when the inmates heard that the unicorn killer was joining them in prison, they were terrified. Most of them had heard of the unicorn. There were whispers of the unicorn, but they had never seen the unicorn in person. They had never been in the same room or in the same vicinity as the unicorn. Typically, unicorns are not capturable. That's the thing. There was something untouchable about the unicorn. There were whispers that the CIA, even themselves, were scared of the unicorn. That they wanted everyone to believe, oh, the unicorn doesn't really exist. People said some of the most powerful heirs and heiresses in the U.S. supported the unicorn and wanted to set the unicorn free. I mean, all that mystery, all that intrigue, inmates couldn't help but wonder what actually happens when you meet a unicorn. What happens when you stand there and you look a unicorn in the eye? 
As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there is an incredibly thorough, meticulously researched book on this case written by the author Stephen Levy. It's called The Unicorn's Secret. I'm going to be honest with you, it's a super intense read. Like, I'm talking jam-packed every single page with information. Stephen went through more than 250 personal interviews to those that were connected to the case. He went through all the public and private documents he could get his hands on. He put his heart and soul into this, and this by far, hands down, is going to be the best deep dive that you will get on this case. So go grab a copy. With that being said... Do you know what goes on in the mind of a guy in college? It's a question that some of us would never want to know. Some might even pay money to know. It's uh, it's definitely something. To pay money to know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Some people are like, I want to know everything. Here's my money. Take it. Tell me everything. Some people would be like, I think it's better if we just stay in the dark on this one. I think it's better for humanity, society as a whole. Maybe even the government if we just don't know. Because do you really want to know what's going on in Chad's head? Probably not. It's traumatizing. It's, it's something. Ira was a college student, but he wasn't like the other college boys. He was different. He didn't like going to frat parties, ugh, flipping upside down on beer kegs. Those are for disgusting sub-intellectuals. This guy is the type of person that would get his coursework. And if a class said it out of 10 required books, that you needed to read. And then at the bottom, it usually has like 100 suggested books. He would sit there and read all 110 books and ask the professors for more reading. He was an intellectual, an academic. If you told him any bit of new information, he would stand there and <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying this guy seems like a horror to be around. He would say, source, source. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's so, source. This guy is blue. Where'd you read that source? Source. Yeah, that's what he would do. No, and he would way. go on to read the entire source article, book, catalog, whatever he could find and find you the next day to let you know his findings. You might think that Ira, the intellectual, was far too busy reading about philosophy to dabble in, you know, casual dating. But you'd be wrong. Ira actually loved sex. He said that he lost his virginity at 13 years old to a 19-year-old camp counselor who seduced him, but he's grateful. He said, knowing that an older girl wanted to sleep with me, ugh, really helped my self-confidence, I'll tell you that. Ever since then, he's always just had a thing for 19-year-olds. No, really, no matter how old he got, he just had a thing for 19-year-olds. In high school, he had about 10 sexual experiences. And in college, since he's such an avid note taker, he's a journaler. He started ranking all of his sexual experiences. By the time that he had finished college, he had already slept with hundreds of women. And he thought that this was completely normal. He even dabbled in gangbangs. But it wasn't his cup of tea. His mom was shocked. That he doesn't like gangbangs? Yeah. She's like, oh, I really thought that'd be straight up your alley. <laughs> it's like, unfortunately, mother was not. Yeah, he told his mom about the gangbangs. Okay, so Ira slept with hundreds and hundreds of women. How do you keep track? How do you remember them? Were you dating them? Were they all one night stands? He said, actually, I know really nothing about them. I was a sophomore or junior in college before I began to have this uh, tendency to want to talk to a girl that was momentarily in my bed, mainly to give her that feeling that I was really interested in her, you know? Sex is a narcissistic thing when you really think about it. You're really just having an affair with yourself. You're experiencing yourself and not the girl. The girl is an object. She is an ID, a projection of yourself. You may be having sex with her, but in effect, you've never really met her. You don't really care about her. So no, I don't really know anything about them. 
Ira made it a point from then on to ask girls about themselves, not because he really cared, but just because he just wanted to know who he was sleeping with so he could write it in his little journal so he could have a little note to remember them by. But he never told them about himself. It's not that he was shy. Clearly, it's not that he didn't think that he was interesting enough. It's not that he was insecure. It's that these girls were just merely not worth his breath. They did not earn the honor yet of getting to know Ira, the intellectual. So what are Ira's deal breakers in a relationship, you ask? This guy sounds like he's got impeccable standards because we know that we're all just dying to date this catch. He said, I can't live very long with someone who doesn't enjoy cunnilingus or won't perform fellatio on me. I also don't like to sleep with virgins. You know, I have a few times and it was a mess. I much prefer to pick up a girl who is adequate in terms of sexual experience and she's going to perform without constantly having been told what to do. Like, that's exhausting. If a girl is important to me and wanted to get married, sure, I would indulge her. It's a corny custom that we should have done away with ages ago, getting married. But if it'll make a girl feel better, you might as well humor her. I'm not actually going to marry her. What makes all of this more alarming is that outside of his dorm room and his car and wherever else he was doing the nasty, Ira presented himself as a feminist. He would shout to the heavens and back, women are great. They are equal to men. Woo! But in his one-night stands, and even his long-term relationships, it's clear he's a raging, abusive sexist. He did not treat any woman like an equal. If he wasn't interested in sleeping with you, he wouldn't talk to you. He would blatantly ignore you. He wouldn't even look at you. But if he's trying to sleep with you, oh, he's going to lay it on thick. But that minute that you reject him, or the minute that he sleeps with you and he has conquered the unconquerable, he's going to go back to treating you as subhuman. He felt that all women were simply around to serve. That's all. I mean, it's kind of terrifying that some of the most sexist, abusive people hide under the weird facade of, I support women, and then they do this. It's so weird. Ira really liked to date girls that he had power imbalances with. He would take teenagers, girls that just graduated high school, and he would journal about it. And that's how the book Lolita came to be. No, I'm kidding, but I'm not. He journaled about how he had to teach these young girls how to have sex, and sometimes he wouldn't want to have full-on intercourse with them because he wanted the girls to remain innocent. So he taught them other sexual acts, such as fellatio. He journaled about a 16-year-old he was dating while he was well into his 20s, and he said, and I quote, I have one rather hurt little creature in my hands, a creature who has given me delightful hours while she's been sucking my ass balls and penis with the kind of passion that truly turns me on. So with the way that Ira talks about sex, you would imagine with that much experience, he would at least be good at it, right? (laughs) Right? No, all of his former girlfriends in sexual escapades were interviewed. They said not once did they ever orgasm with this guy, not once. Some even tried to tell him about it, like, hey, Ira, you're not making me orgasm and I'm getting a little frustrated. And he would just simply say, well, that sounds like a you problem. How is that a me problem? You can't orgasm, not me. Great, fantastic, amazing. Maybe it's because there was no small kitten involved. Let me explain. One of Ira's former girlfriends said he was into sadism. Oh, the guy was sick. He loved bringing little kittens back to his shower and dumping them in water. He wanted to hear them squeal. Another one messing with cats. Another one. Don't fuck with cats. He even journaled about sadism. He wrote, sadism sounds nice. Run it over your tongue. Sadism. Contemplate the joy, the pains of others as you expire with an excruciating satisfaction. Reveal the filth that you are. 
Just know that the animal is always there. Beauty and innocence must be violated, for they cannot be possessed. The sacred mystery of another must be preserved. Only death can do that. Okay, that's really terrifying. I think we would rather not know. Do you think that this is something Ira's going to grow out of? Maybe, you know, the, the toxic phrase some people use, oh, boys will be boys. They're just a kid. He didn't know any better. He's just in college. He's finding himself. Or do you think he's going to be an asshole for the rest of his life and a walking red flag that you're going to warn all of your friends about? Or... Do you think he's going to grow up to be a beloved figure in a huge community until he's arrested for murder? To get to the answer, we've got to backtrack a little bit. Back to baby Ira. Potentially the only version of Ira that didn't hurt people. We can't be sure though, so don't quote me on it. Ira Samuel Einhorn was born in Philadelphia, and he actually came from this lower class Jewish family. His mom, Beatrice, but they call her B. And his dad, Joe, tried to raise him right, kind of. But the minute that B laid eyes on her older son, her firstborn son, she was in love. She was in too deep. She said, well, everybody loved him. He was the most beloved child. So B and Joe, they went on to have another son right after Ira. But she didn't seem to fall in love with him like she did with Ira. Everyone around the family knew that he was clearly the least favored. And Ira was the family's golden boy. Like he could do no wrong. B doted over him nonstop 24-7. She wanted this boy to grow up and be someone. Be someone as special as she saw him. He was going to be a scholar. Oh, a doc- no, not a doctor, not a lawyer. So boring, so lame, so typical. A scholar. Oh, that has a nice, that's a nice touch to it. A philosopher. <gasps> that's what she wanted. So B starts teaching him third grade level math, reading, all of that, before he even starts kindergarten. B encouraged Ira to read everything he could get his hands on, and it's going to make him sound and think better. He would sound authoritative. He would sound like he came from prestige, from wealth, from intellect. That's the vibe. She wanted that old money vibe, and it worked. Ira fell in love with reading, and B was so proud. She remembers this so fondly. She says, oh, my sweet boy would come to dinner, a book in his hand. We would go on vacation sometimes and he would take so many books. You wouldn't even know what to do. It was so heavy, those suitcases. I don't think he slept more than three to four hours a night ever. Five would be the top. Oh, we'd be so jet lagged. He'd sleep five hours. I'd get up in the morning. I'd say, Ira, and uh, he'd already be up and reading. He's special, isn't he? Listen, I would be alarmed and slightly creeped out if my kid was only sleeping that little. I think I would take him to the hospital. That cannot be good. Like, you're sleep-deprived, kid. But she loved it. What a weird flex. Ira just had this competitive drive. Like, he had this thirst for wanting to know everything, being good at everything, being better than everyone at everything. I think the best way to describe this guy is, you know those people that don't want to know facts because they're genuinely interested? They kind of keep it in their memory bank so they can blurt it out randomly. Mm -hmm. If anything even remotely associated with it comes up the worst (laughs) yeah and you're just like what are you saying that's not even a normal conversation that is ira he wanted to master it all so his mom was this huge bridge player which is a card game that requires quite a bit of strategy and ira instead of asking her hey can you teach me how to play bridge he went out got books on bridge read it all up before he even played one game with his mom he did not want to go into the game without knowing what the fork he was doing oh that's scary it's terrifying it's scary and he was a kid yeah and his mom had no idea that he was reading books on bridge imagine 
live life like no, that. No, I, I would be terrified of my child. Like I, before we have a fight, <laughs> he's going to read yes. up all the strategies before yes. the fight even begins. Yes, he's going to read all the books about parenting and then tell me what I'm doing wrong. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Oh my God. So he challenges his mom in his first round of real life playing. His mom said he almost beat her. It was the most terrifying round of her life. I mean, you would never know that this is his first time and he almost beat her. She's been playing this for decades and he's only 10 years old. Uh Can you believe it? I mean, I hate to admit it, but the kid's pretty advanced, which led to not so great results in school. I know, surprising. It's shocking, but he was just so bored with school. He already knew everything. He actually was able to skip three full grades, but his dad was worried about him becoming antisocial. So he wasn't, he had to stay behind. He thought it was miserable. He, he didn't like these friends. He didn't even like showing up to class. He could take tests without showing up to a single day and gotten the highest grades in all the subjects. But this isn't college. You know, it's like the fifth grade. You got to show up. Is he like a genius or something? So he claims he's a genius. It's reported that his IQ was like 140 up. Oh, that's a genius. Right? Yeah. So he's yeah. pretty smart. So it's not college, you know, he had to show up. He had to sit there and out of sheer boredom, Ira would start acting out in class. He would yell in class. He would get out of his seat, just start taking a stroll around the class. He said, I had to remain in regular school, held back at my age level where I could learn absolutely nothing. It was so excruciating that I threw up my breakfast every morning before school. Thankfully, when Ira moved to a new school, the administrators, they tried to help him out more. They realized that he's acting out because he was mentally understimulated. So they put him in a bunch of extracurriculars and it it did kind of mitigate him acting out for the time being, at least. He continued to get amazing grades. And listen, I'm sure there's some truth to the fact that he's very, very smart because he was even famous in his community as a little boy. They all called him an independent thinker in a nice way. He always had some strange styles. He loved wearing Bermuda shorts. You're like, what's wrong with that? Like those cargo shorts. (laughs) And now this was during a time where everybody wore the same thing. And during the 50s when he was growing up, all the kids were dressed pretty dapper. Mm. Like they were really cute. And he's wearing Bermuda shorts. And it was said that he had noodle legs. So it just didn't, it didn't really add much to the Bermuda shorts. You're not seeing this as fashion forward or different. People were seeing this as him being an outcast. Like something is genuinely wrong with you. Are you an attention seeker? But Ira loved it. You see, he developed this bit of an ego. With all the praise, with all the good grades, he felt invincible. He wanted to stand out. He wanted to be different. So by the time that he gets into high school, he had a richer vocabulary than most people would acquire throughout their entire lives. I mean, he would go around saying, the implementation of this cafeteria pizza is absolutely wretched. <laughs> Look at all of my obsequious classmates all wearing the newest fashion trends. Has their frontal lobe been pulverized into smithereens? It is insufferable. So hard I like this guy, right? <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> now, one of Ira's classmates, Mel, said he would attempt to dominate conversations. <laughs> yeah, that's the type of guy he was. Domination. <laughs> like even a, just a simple conversation about the weather, he had to dominate. But what's interesting is... He's like, today's sunny? Source. <laughs> source. <laughs> source. Source. You're like, look outside. He's like, source. Visual is perception, 
No, Mel said, you know, it's weird, though. If he was in the presence of somebody that he knew that had more knowledge than him, like he knew this person knew more than him. This person was an expert in their field. He would actually be an amazing conversationalist. He would sit there intently, listen and respectfully. But at the end, you would notice that he's trying to figure out where this person got their information. Not because he's trying to check it, but because he's a little bit upset that they got this information before he did. Huh. It's like he was starving for knowledge. I wonder what he would do if he lived in this age then. Because everything's online. Oh, he would Or he'd just be Googling nonstop all oh, day Oh, he would long. be so annoying. <laughs> oh my gosh. He, he wanted to feed his curiosity, right? But the main motivation seemed to be that he wanted to feed his ego as well. He just had this image of himself. He's not like a regular suburban kid. He's more of a member of the European intellectual philosophical group of people. That's how he identified himself. Sometimes his friends would come over and his mom would let them in. They'd be like, oh, where is Ira? Oh, he's up in his restroom. Okay. So they'd go up to his restroom and he'd be reading in the empty bathtub, just taking notes. Just kind of weird. You know, a little, biz- a little bit bizarre for their age. But that was Ira. Now, you're imagining this wimpy kid with his arms quivering at the weight of his books. Not really. The dude was doing like 100 push-ups a day. (laughs) He just had this really intense upper body strength. He always seemed to skip leg day, though. But (laughs) people thought it was odd. And because he had this physical strength, he would get into fights to feed his ego. He never really started them. He never really sought them out or looked for them, but he happened to come across a fight. Oh, he wasn't going to shy away. He was going to hop, tap in. Okay, he's going in. He didn't always win the fights, but it didn't hurt his ego. As long as he did damage on the other guy, he was fine with it. He would even tell his friends, and this one's creepy. They're all at a diner eating fries. He's probably eating a freaking salad. And he's sitting there talking about his fights and how nothing can hurt him. Oh, yeah, okay, sure, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, nothing can hurt you. I'm sure an MMA fighter could probably hurt you. I mean, I'm sure physically and medically speaking, that person could do some damage, but I'm talking about actually hurting me. No, if I don't want to feel something, I don't have to because pain is in your head. Okay, okay, Iris's pain is in... Okay, so Ira, if I lit this cigarette and I take it and I press it up against your hand right now, you're going to feel the pain. Don't be dumb. No, I wouldn't. Okay, then let's try it. And this is the story of how five high school kids hovered around a table at a local diner, burning a cigarette into their friend's hand. And sure enough, Ira didn't flinch. He didn't even bat an eye. He sat there staring into their souls, hands steady, not a single word. His friends were impressed, but they were terrified. I mean, what kind of kid does that in high school? So after high school, Ira gets into the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, the same alma mater as uh, as Sarma, the bad vegan. Amazing school, by the way. Um, Cool, cool, cool. Anyway, at first, Ira wanted to major in physics. Sure, the workload is heavy, but he loved it. He likes all the physical stuff. I'm just kidding. He likes physics, okay? He loved challenging his teachers. If they made a point, Ira would stand up and say, but professor, (laughs) and he would cite some obscure source and he would say, but did you happen to read this? Because this passage from page 235 contradicts what you just said. Yeah, he was one of those. He also never showed up to class. He just stayed in his dorm room reading anything he could get his hands on, but he was still passing all of his classes and he just got bored with school again. And he decided to switch majors because, you know, quantum physics, it's it's so boring. It's so limiting. It's too easy. 
I understand all of it in this, while I was researching this podcast. I know everything about quantum physics already. So he gets into linguistics and writing courses. And now nothing says scholarly like being an author. So that's the road that he's trying to go down now. He even gets super close to a professor named Morse Peckham. And he was so impressed with Ira that he even gave him a key to his actual house. Which why? Why did you do that? Some people speculate that the two had a more intense relationship. But the friends of the professor said, he's clearly asexual. And he's just impressed by Ira. He is brilliant. Ira was seen as an intellectual equal to the professor. Sometimes the two of them would sit in silence listening to the entire 15 hours of Wagner's Ring Cycle. Do you not know what that is? It's a cycle of four epic music dramas that typically takes four nights at the opera to finish. The sheer length is intense, but it is magnificent. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> See, I would die. They would go to the libraries together, you know, consuming everything they could get their hands on philosophy, medicine, psychology. If they were feeling particularly inspired, the two of them could sit there in silence and read for 20 hours straight of academic texts. Don't think Fifty Shades of Grey, think reading material that doctors would read. I don't even know what that is. Just academic te- a textbook for 20 hours. Ira would complain to him and his parents that he was smarter than most of his professors and he knew more about what they were teaching and it was just so frustrating. So after graduating on a full scholarship at UPenn, Ira does enter into a period of being lost. He's trying to find himself. He's got no direction. He, he moved into his own apartment called The Piles, which was like this super old building, but he loved it. He had a few cushions to sit on, a mattress to sleep on, and everything else in the entire place was filled with books. If he didn't have enough money to buy books or pay rent, he would sell weed on the side. Now, his friends said that it wasn't a drug empire he was interested in. He just wanted time to study and read books. And this was the easiest way to keep the lights on and buy more books. Now, after being lost, Ira decides to give grad school a try. He wants to focus on language, folklore. He took a heavy course load in linguistics. In linguistics, listen, I want to say linguini. (laughs) He took several courses in Old Norse, Middle High German, a tutorial in Sanskrit. His language classes alone required about 200 pages of dense reading every single week. Like, that's a lot. Think, again, keyword dense. I think grad school only made him more annoying, which can you imagine? He just turned into this guy that loved to annoy the shit out of you over breakfast. Every single morning, he would bring up philosophy over his black coffee because avocado toast is for simpletons. And you're just sitting there like, bro, I just asked you how your coffee was. And I was wondering if you had more coffee filters. I didn't ask for your rambles of society and how humans are the downfall to everything. Like, I don't need to do this right now. You're like, how bad could his rambles be, Stephanie? Like, that's so rude. Just listen to him about his passions. Let me read you a journal excerpt. He wrote, Oh, the sheer joy of the mind. On the wing as it roams throughout all of the knowledge. I'm up in the air on that pure world of intellectual speculation where one calmly surveys the entire realm of human knowledge and it slowly fits together. All seems possible. Nothing is too difficult. When I occupy this rare field, this atmosphere, I exult in the expectation of my future dreams as I encompass all I thought. I don't even know what a single thing he just said. (laughs) (laughs) Am I dumb? (laughs) 
Yeah. Like some might look at this and think, what a visionary, a dreamer of sorts. But I don't know. He's given very much 23-year-old guy that likes to smoke some pot and talk shit about society. Like that's what he's given me with a little bit of, you know, intellect involved. He often had marijuana-induced epiphanies. The guy didn't even, you know, need pot sometimes. Sometimes he would just get high off of his own genius philosophies. He said, I have been wandering of late along paths that have never felt my footprints before. A quiet waiting pervaded over my entire being. I'm going through a radical change to and from what I know not, but who does? He also had an epiphany that getting a doctorate was not his dream. He just didn't like the system. That's what he said. So he starts acting out, challenging his professors more aggressively. Even his relationship with his mentor is now going south. The mentor later said, I realized Ira was primarily interested not in the validity of ideas, but in their excitement. I think you will find that he simply was swept along in what was the advanced fashion of the moment. He just liked to go with the intellectual trends. He didn't actually care if an idea was valid. He just liked the idea and the excitement of a new thing. Maybe you just like the excitement of a new car, but you have really no care if that car is the best car in the world or the fastest mm -hmm. car in the world or the safest car in the world. You just yeah. like having new cars all the time. Yeah, you're not really a car person. Yeah. You're like seeking... Yes. Seeking the hype. And like having a collection to show people. Like, yeah. look at everything I know. Look at all the cars I have. Right. So now that Ira really burned all of his bridges, he starts going from smoking weed to doing acid. <laughs> Here's what he had to say about acid. I lay under the stars and I watched a procession of unbelievable visions for hours. I feel at almost every moment like the last movement of Mahler's Ninth which by the way is the last symphony of Gustav Mahler composed and considered one of his greatest, okay? I mean, the whole thing is just so pretentious. How can you turn such a thing as just plain old drug use into this? Yeah, sounds like he's on acid. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so after this, Ira is hired to teach English at Temple University and he became a professor for a very, very short year. He was, um, he was something else. He would walk in, how to get away with murder style, and he would start writing on the blackboard. On one side, he had the big bold letters, sexuality. And on the other side, he wrote eroticism. He would throw the chalk down, turn around. Can someone tell me the difference? <laughs> <laughs> wow, so good. So good. He was obsessed with teaching English and literature, sure. But he loved teaching sex and philosophy. He even talked to his students about drugs. He said, I dress like the students. If they ask me about marijuana and LSD, I give them straight answers about the delights and the dangers. I make no bones about my contempt for the academic world. I'm very popular with the kids. I wouldn't say that I was with the administration. He was right. The administrators hated him. After a year, they never called him back to teach. I mean, he was a lot. He would give lab courses on sex in his own bedroom. Listen, I tried to look more into that part, and can you imagine my Google search history? But I couldn't find anything. I don't know if he was teaching about sex in his room. I thought you were on the wrong website. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, professor teaches sex in his own bedroom. <laughs> That's my Google search. I spent hours and I watched so many videos, and none of them, I think, worked. <laughs> I, think, I think my research was a little flawed on this one. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. So he would teach sex in his room, which is really odd. Or I don't know if there was role play. I don't know. Despite being a seemingly woke, ahead of his time, quirky dude, he was still, like I said, a raging sexist. Let's say you were his female friend and you wanted to publish a book. He would tell you, go for it. That's amazing. Oh, my God. You say, okay, well, I want to open up a all women's, you know, doctor's practice where we only take women patients. He'd say, oh, my God, go for it. But if you ever took on a role where you were in charge of or led or even told a man what to do, he would say, whoa, 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 whoa. that's a job for a man. You can't be going around telling men what to do. You can't be going around having men work under you. That's you just won't be able to handle it. Like you don't know how to handle a man. So women in power were only acceptable if they were not in power of men to him. And he was just so rude. He would go over to his friends' houses and completely disrespect their wives. I mean, one time he went to his buddy's Ralph's house and his wife was there. He didn't even say hi to Ralph's wife, just completely acted like she didn't live there. And his wife, being a nice person, went out of her way, really didn't need to do this and said, hey, guys, uh, you guys want something to drink? We have water, coffee. And Ira looked at her and said, tea, but make it steeped. I prefer steeped tea, not bag tea. It was an order, not a request, not a, oh my God, thank you. It was as if she was a servant. She was working in the house. I wouldn't even talk to a server like that. He was just a shitty guy. So of course, when he starts looking for relationships, he's just a very domineering person. He likes to be the teacher, the older, more mature person in the group. He was a master manipulator. Anytime one of his girlfriends realized that he was horrible or that he was potentially abusive, he would win them back with these sweet letters, his heartfelt apologies, his intellectual words and his vocabulary, and he would charm his way back into their lives. For what? Just to terrorize them again. That's what. One of his ex-girlfriends, Rita, remembers one time she broke up with him and she looked into his eye and it was something dark. It's like, she said, it's like, you know, those super supernatural movies on TV where the eyes change and they become a werewolf. It was just like that. Truly. He walked over to the door and he locked it. And I just knew when that happened, I was in a room with a madman. He started walking towards me. He, he took his time. He didn't even look rushed. He was so much bigger than me. So like, what am I going to do? He grabbed his hands around my neck and started to choke me. And I passed out. Thankfully, Rita survived, and he later wrote about this incident. This is what Ira said. To kill what you love when you can't have it seems so natural. Strangling Rita last night seemed so right. I loved watching the color of her face change, but something happened in the last moment. Insanity, thank goodness, is only temporary. And when the nightmare lifts, one must face the truth. He really thinks he's like a super villain. Though. Yeah. And it's like, no, you're just a homicidal person. You're terrifying. You're an abuser. That's what you are. 
Why are you making it so what's going on with you? So Rita did not press charges and Ira was upset that nobody was around to do his chores. I mean, those darn females. So after he lost his teaching position, he starts roaming around doing nothing. He would read, write, have sex. And that was about it. He tried to write a novel, but no publisher wanted it. No matter how much Ira told them it was borderline genius, they thought it was completely incomprehensible. None of it made sense. So he gets into a ton of relationships after this in a really short amount of time. And you're like, why? How? Because when he would get a girlfriend, either he blatantly cheated on her or he would manipulate the younger girl into thinking that an open relationship is what she wanted. And he would just go and have a ton of girlfriends on the side. Whenever the girls had enough and they tried to leave, he would get angry. He wrote about a particular time. One of his girlfriends, Judy, she was 18, by the way. And this guy was seven years older than her. Now, this is legal, but knowing this guy and how he exclusively only likes young girls, it's creepy. Anyway, she tried to leave him and he wrote, The violence that flowed through my being tonight still awaits that further dark confirmation of its existence, which could only result in the murder of which I seem to love so deeply. The repressed is returning to a form that is almost impossible to control. There is a good chance that I will attempt to kill Judy tomorrow. The rational awareness of this fact brings stark terror into my heart. So it's like the show you. Yeah, but he's trying to make it seem normal and romantic and as if it's philosophical and this is the nature of humans and the nature of men. No. Now, Ira continues to harass Judy after that and fantasizing about her murder. Violence just creeps over my body as I reach toward the destruction of Judy, a hopeless victim in this infernal entanglement, which seems to be draining the life's blood of both of us. He ended that one with, we must come together or die. The fantasies reached a tipping point when Judy came over after Ira's incessant begging, by the way, to talk to him. And she came over for some coffee. She's like, okay, let me give this guy some closure. Like, it's not happening. We're not going to date. But he immediately thought, oh, she wants to date me again. Duh. So when Judy's like, okay, well, I'm leaving. What? What do you mean you're leaving? He freaked out. He's pissed. And when Judy turns her back, he reaches over for a Coke bottle, breaks it over her head, the glass ones. She starts bleeding everywhere. He wrestles her to the ground, held her down by her neck, and she felt her head hit against the table as she fell. Ira was strangling her. She felt herself go limp. And we know what happened next because of Ira's journal. He said, in such violence, there may be freedom. Where am I now after having hit Judy over the head with a Coke bottle, blood on my jacket and pants, then making some feeble attempts to choke her? She wanted to live. That has been established. I'll be able, if she doesn't have me arrested, to go back to living a normal life. Violence always marks the end of a relationship. It's the final barrier over or through which no communication is possible. Judy survived and she did not press charges. Ira moves to California to find himself. And this is the summer of 1966. So this is kind of important. The hippie movement was raging in California. And Ira had some connections there. So he starts staying with random people for free. And he loved it. He would walk through someone's front door and just completely strip naked. He liked to let it all hang out. Wiggle around. People were shocked. He also fell heavily into LSD usage during this time. He and his friends would go to the beach. Everyone would strip completely stark naked, get high off LSD, high as balls, and stare into each other's eyes while spacing out. Drugs are really wild. It was during one of these wild moments, a friend of Ira said, 
Wait, what's your last name again? Oh, Einhorn. Oh my God, like one horn, right? Oh, oh my God, it could mean unicorn. Ira loved it. Oh yeah, he loved it. That one, He started calling himself the unicorn after that. He loved the idea, the parallel between himself and this mythical creature. A unicorn represents purity, uniqueness, gentleness, sexual power. It, it was a rare being that ran free. That was Ira. He starts using this name to talk at public forums. He made his way back to Philadelphia and he starts going through all these different events that circled around Karl Marx, socialism, civil rights. And since it was a free movement, really, you had the opportunity, anyone had the opportunity to go up and make a speech and talk to a crowd of people. People loved what the unicorn had to say. He was intellectual. He was good with his words. It also helped that he had a ponytail and a beard. So he just kind of had this like authoritative look about him, like this gentle look almost, like this gentle philosophical being that's just kind of above material things, that's kind of above normal human wants and needs. Imagine literally the professor from Money Heist, like that type of vibe, but with a ponytail. (laughs) That's kind of the vibe people were getting and I can't even blame them because they don't know the horrible side of Ira. They just know what he's presenting. So there's this free university at UPenn and they call it Free U. It was UPenn's experiment on alternative education. Now, Ira was so... Oh, here's what happens, right? At Free U, the teachers are picked by the students. So you go up and essentially have an audition to be a teacher and everybody votes who's going to be the teacher. That's crazy. Really? Amazing. And Ira was so inspired by this, he started teaching courses on psychedelics at Free U. He held the classes in his apartment, and it was all about the revolution of the body and the revolution of the mind. It's just about drugs, but (laughs) I don't know. Am I just so dumb that I don't get... (laughs) I'm like, you mean drugs? I mean, at one of these home sessions, one of his female students said he wanted to turn the class into a party, and out come the joints. Everybody's smoking it up. Suddenly, he's encouraging all of us to get naked and shed all of our inhibitions. And this guy starts taking off his clothes. He starts dancing. Well, I don't know about dancing, but he's like wiggling around. I freaked out at the sight of my teacher's chubby naked body wiggling around near me. So when he came to bear hug me, I I ran out the door. He later came up to me and the whole class actually, and he excused himself. He said, what's part of the teaching? I wanted to show everybody that it's okay to be uncomfortable and it's okay to freak out because not everybody is ready for my progressive teaching yet. All of these little stories actually attracted a ton of media attention for the unicorn. People wanted to get to know him, ask his opinion on the movements that were going around. I mean, he even held a human bee in, which is a group of people that gather and just do stuff. So he gathered about 2,000 people at a local park. They painted each other's bodies. They exchanged daffodils. They wore floppy hats. And a small group of people burned a few dollar bills while screaming, down with the capitalists. This was in Philadelphia. It's said that the L.A. and New York City ones were a little bit more wild. So who knows what they did? (laughs) Ira's mom even showed up to hand out cookies. I mean, B was upset that her son didn't become the scholar that she had expected and hoped for. But overall, she was supportive. She was supportive in Ira's career or any idea that he had. She genuinely believed that he was he was someone. That's all that mattered to her. In this movement, he was the unicorn. He had respect. He had he had admiration. He had love. He had devotion. That's all she really cared about. She just did not want her son to be mediocre. That's it. She would even go to lectures that he gave. Now, Joe, Ira's dad, on the other hand, was not a fan. Joe was very religious, like I said. He raised his family Jewish, and now Ira was against anything that had an emphasis on God. 
But there was no stopping this guy. It seemed like his popularity was only growing. He would speak at events, which soon became his only source of income, like his main source of income. He was making good money. He had long hair, a beard. People wrote about Ira as either the hippie philosopher, the intellectual, the writer, lecturer, professor, local guru, and sometimes just pot smoker. Local pot smoker says, <laughs> I love it. He was quoted saying these things. America is dead for me. It does not exist. I ask my fellow hippies, we're going to break the back of law enforcement by flooding the jails with arrests for drug use. Did you know there's even tons of teenagers who are undercover agents in their parents' homes conducting guerrilla warfare? He would say, now remember everyone, it only takes 3% of the population to start a revolution. I am an earthling living at the edge of evolution, at the edge of the mind here on planet Earth, right before the great war of transformation. Listen, you just need to add a little tone and suddenly it's a speech. But like, what did you just say? You said nothing, no? He says, what this country needs is two months of silence. 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 <laughs> Dumbledore. <laughs> So then Ira went on to hold a huge event called Summer of Love, and he tried speed for the first time, categorized as an amphetamine. So it's unlike weed and LSD, which usually make the user a bit more chill. I mean, yeah, you're going to hallucinate, but you're going to be a bit more chill. You're going to be a bit, a bit more relaxed. Speed is the opposite. It's going to increase your heart rate, blood pressure. You're going to increase focus. It's going to make you even feel like you have superhuman levels of energy. Ira hated it. He believed it was destruction. He said it's a ticket to a night of dark paranoia. He actually advised people to immigrate to Canada before this drug took over the U.S. Ira got a job writing for a local hippie newspaper, and he got fired because he refused to actually write anything that made sense. When they tried to edit his work, because sometimes he would just turn in random rambles and they were all in uppercase, he would, he would throw a fit. He wanted the article to be posted exactly as is. He thought that he was just on a nevel, another level of genius. Okay, no offense. It's given me Elon Musk's kid's name. Do you know what I mean? Where you don't really understand what's going on. It's like so bizarre. <laughs> That's the vibe a little bit, okay? Anyway, with that and his students, he had a platform of sorts. And with this, he was just promoting the crap out of drug use, saying it was amazing. I mean, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Ira ends up on the authorities' drug radar. He's on the narc team's watch list, okay? Even Ira himself wasn't doing much drugs anymore. He was more into dieting. He was obsessed with balanced diets. He was heading into the Eastern practices. He said, oh, you know over there, the Zen Buddhists, they just eat a normal balanced diet with less animal products and they reach a different level of spirituality that way. So he started making these super intense muffins. They just tasted like sand. And it was when Ira was munching on a sand muffin that his house was raided by authorities. Now, I guess luckily for Ira, he had already hidden all of his drugs and he starts amusing the officers instead. And he starts bragging about how many push-ups he can do. And I guess the officers thought it was comical because he was not arrested. Another time, the narcotics division came with a search warrant to his house and he just opened up the door completely butt naked. They said everything was hanging out. It was just wiggling around. He was in the middle of having sex. The police ransacked the entire place and they found jars full of pills. They tried to instigate Ira, get him to do something stupid. They called his girlfriend a whore and called him a scumbag. And Ira calmly looked at them and said, look guys, I'm a, I'm a black belt in karate. Now I can be very violent. I can do a lot of damage to you, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do any damage. The cops backed off and went to the jars of pills. Most of them ended up being prescription medication, but they found two pills. 
not two bottles, but one, two. And they were not prescribed to Ibra. So they arrested him, mainly because they hated him. But ultimately, he gets out on bail and the charges are dismissed. I mean, this guy sucks overall. That's just what I'm getting at. So why do people even like him? He did do some good ones in a while. In the basement of his apartment building, he had a young doctor friend who opened up what was called Palton Trouble Center. It wasn't much. It was just a space for residents to come to see a doctor, eat something, and Dr. Holland, his business partner or his charity partner or whatever, would help drug addicts come down from dangerous highs. And even though it's just the basement of his apartment building, and even though it's just a mattress on the floor, I'm sure it changed a few lives. Ira also helped popularize Earth Day in his area as what it's known today. Back then, Earth Day wasn't that big. Now it's a huge thing. And all these companies are like, Earth Day, make all the ads green. Yeah, he loved it. He would try and meet up with local businessmen and entrepreneurs and try to talk to them about the environment, but in a non-confrontational way. He did it peacefully. He even kissed a senator on the lips in front of big crowds to show, hey, there's no bad blood. We don't like his laws. We don't like what he's doing, but there's no bad blood. Some of his peers were confused. Hey, um... Why are you befriending all these rich guys that own companies that pollute our earth and make money off of that? What's going on? And he said, I realized when I started networking, I was involved in a long range process. I wanted to understand what what it was about these people, these personality types, because these are the people that run America. Let's be real. There's no doubt about it. Now, my concern was that they are human beings. And I want to know how I can reach these people. How can I humanize them in some way? I mean, the CEO of AT&T has a million workers underneath him. And if he's a little bit more human, a million lives live better. Simple as that. So I'm trying to make them human. That's all. This really won people over. People started demanding he run for mayor of Philadelphia. And he did run as a PR stunt. He he would have won. He literally was get he was the favorite candidate. He was getting the most votes. He was ranking in the polls, but he said, "Not that I wouldn't make a groovy mayor. I just don't think the mayor's job is a very important job right now. It's it's kind of like an old fading symbol." So Ira didn't want to be a mayor, but he was super political. He would always say, "Anyone who's in a government position right now should know that their days are numbered." Most people are waking up not knowing if they're going to wake up tomorrow in the same bed. It's as true in the U.S. as it is anywhere else. I'd just like to see Nixon smoke a little pot and listen to kids talk. And he would say, but I can't do the politics thing. I can't run it. I'm too busy doing all my other groups. Iris said that he was part of the Synergy Group, which was a group that was focused on helping runaways and young people get off the streets. But you would never actually see Ira doing that. He was, part of, he was more part of the group spiritually. Never physically. (laughs) The joke is that Ira would never be part of the performance, but he would gladly come up onto stage and accept the applause. Other than that, he also wrote a book called 78-187880. Yeah, the title is just numbers. What does that mean? I don't know. He said he didn't want to give a book a title so that it would suggest a topic. You would have to read the book to form any kind of opinion on it. Oh my God. It was supposed to be a deep dive into his philosophy and his theory of global transformation. If you could read it, that is. I mean, most of it was illegible. It sounded like gibberish. It was nearly impossible to even make sense of it. Or maybe us mere mortals can't ever hope to understand something so profound. It was not even close to becoming a New York Times bestseller. Out of the 10,000 copies printed, only 2,000 were sold. And Ira was saddened by the fact that America was too dumb to realize that his book was the best. 
He went to a local restaurant to eat his sorrows away when he ran into a woman named Holly. And Holly was beautiful. He had to walk over. He had to sit there and say, when's your birthday? I want to look at your astrological chart. I wonder if the chart told him that one of them was going to end up dead. Here's the thing about Holly Maddox. She wasn't supposed to meet someone like Ira. She was the opposite of a guy like him. And it really goes back to how she was raised. Holly Maddox was raised in Texas, where everything is bigger, except for the small towns. So, like she grew up in a super small town, about 50,000 people and 49,000 of them were raging racists. They refused black athletes in their papers because they were just, they were quote, just N words, but they wanted them to play for their teams. Holly Maddox and her family did well for themselves, mainly because they were white. And Fred, Holly's dad, he was this hardworking engineer. Liz, Holly's mom, came from this super wealthy family. So Holly grew up with quite a bit of privilege. She also happened to be incredibly beautiful, blonde. Everyone called her Doodlebug because she was just so pretty and so sweet from a young age. I mean, it was clear Holly was different. She was special. She was gifted. She got good grades. She fell in love with dancing. She earned a lot of honors. She seemed eager to learn. She didn't like to play around like the rest of her classmates, but she was a really reserved girl. I mean, the only time that Holly really showed her personality was in school when she would write papers or stories. She wrote intense ones, a little bit mature for her age. Like she was definitely a bit eccentric, peculiar, weird. I don't know what the word would be. She wrote a 12 page paper on the origins of witchcraft and the study of Bram Stoker's demonic writings, which nothing's wrong with that, but everybody else was writing about their family vacation to Florida. (laughs) So it's just, you know, the juxtaposition. It's like, whoa, what's going on? And here she is. One of the oddest stories she wrote was called model mother. And it begins with mommy and daddy never could get along. Mommy would nag him suspiciously if he got home the least bit late from the lab. His opening words would then be, at least I came home, did I not? And mother would mutter, we wish you hadn't. Which wasn't true, at least not on our part. Speaking of us, sometimes I wonder, in fact, I often wonder, why the rest of the family, like us kids, never grew up as warped personalities. Or did we? The story ends with the mom disappearing and then a new transformed mom comes home who doesn't nag, who doesn't yell at her husband and apparently is a product of the dad's lab experiments to create a more submissive wife. She's good. She's good. I mean, listen, I like it. It's really good. Do I want to watch a movie on it? Yes. Uh, It's very creative for someone so young. I would be very impressed, but it seemed like the teachers were more freaked out than anything. Really? They're like, that's a little weird. <laughs> What's going on here? Okay. Now, Holly was an interesting character. I will tell you that. I think it just, that's what made her different and lovable. One time she got on a boat with her family and they had gotten into this huge fight and she decides, you know what? I'm, I'm not having this conversation anymore. She jumps into the water, starts swimming back to shore. The shore was seven miles away. I mean, of course, her parents dragged her back onto the boat, but the fact that she had the willpower and pride to swim back to shore, to even come to the conclusion of, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm going to swim with the sharks, rather than stay on the boat with your family, is definitely a strong personality. It's a strong character. And in high school, Holly only got more unique. She excelled academically and athletically. She was smart, beautiful. She had this Southern accent. Her friend said, Holly was a bit of a social misfit. She was, she dressed different. She carried herself different. She spoke different. She also didn't wear makeup. And she almost had this European air about her in this little Southern community. 
but she was still popular. Not in the traditional sense, but she was well-liked. By her senior year, she won National Council of Teachers of English Award, a brown belt in judo. She was a merit scholar, a talented solo dancer. She was one of three ideal girls selected on their, quote, ideal personalities. She was a member of the National Honor Society. She was nominated for Basketball Queen, and she even made the cheerleading squad. Everyone on the high school football team had a crush on her, but they never tried to ask her out. She was just too proper, they said. She was always neat, clean, hair combed, put together. You would never hear about her that she was at a party with alcohol. She was, she was just a goody two-shoes. She was kind of shy, but also a free spirit, a free thinker. She was meticulous and smart, and she had this strong sense of justice. She also had a very interesting standard for dating. She would not accept anyone to be her friend unless they opened the door for her, or at least guys. So coupled this with the fact that she was very smart and very pretty, guys never really asked her out because she was intimidating. I mean, they said she's beautiful and intelligent. That's what makes her intimidating. But her shyness and her insecurity made her appear kind of cold, closed off, like she was distant and quiet. She almost had this moon child quality, a waif quality, which I had to look up. By definition, waif means a person who is very thin and looks unhealthy and uncared for, but almost in the, um, I want to help this person sense. That's the vibe that I'm getting reading these definitions. It's kind of a petite person who also to a degree seems to be a damsel in distress, kind of like a fairy has some childlike qualities about them. Her, her dancing coach remembers her to be a very private person. She never really socialized. She would just always be in the corner with her head down, thinking, dwelling on something. She was just given to a kind of introversion. And because she didn't really explore her dating options, Holly was a bit naive when it came to dating. One time a guy did hit on her. Oh yeah, he tried to pull a fast one. He said, Holly, you'll never guess what happened. Um, I'm dying of cancer. Yep, mm-hmm. I got a few weeks to live and my make-a-wish is that I lose my virginity to you. No, don't tell me. And Holly ran home crying, sobbing, and her parents said, what's wrong, Holly? Well, I have to lose my virginity to Sam. I don't even like Sam. What? Why do you have to lose your virginity to Sam? You don't have to do any of that. Why? What, did, what happened? He's dying. He has cancer. This is his last wish. And her parents laughed out loud. They thought it was, I mean, I'm sure they called Sam's parents, but they laughed out loud. They thought it was hilarious. They were shocked that Holly almost fell for it. I mean, you're so smart. You get good grades. What's going on? You didn't know that this was, you really thought that this was true? So Holly starts dating another guy her senior year. And he said this about her. You could look at Holly and tell that she was a queen. Oh, there was no doubt about it. The way that she carried herself, the way that she acted, but you know, she wasn't stuck up. She wasn't arrogant. She really wasn't. She was quiet, introspective, studious, a lot more studious than kids our age. I think it was a lot of the defensive. I think it was hard on her. She always needed to look perfect, to act perfect, never do anything wrong, get straight A's, win everything she entered, do everything well, never lose her cool, never become emotionally involved in anything. I think all of that had a hell of an effect on her. She just seemed like she got this big fear of being hurt physically, emotionally, everything. I mean, it was a lot. By the end of high school, Holly was voted most likely to succeed. And on paper, she actually did better than Ira Einhorn. Yeah, she did better book-wise, like uh, on paper-wise, grade-wise. But there was one crucial difference. Ira studied to feed his curiosity and his ego. Holly studied because she didn't want to let anyone down. It was what was expected of her. 
She felt the never-ending pressure to be perfect all the time. She was put in this box and expected to mold herself in there, and all she had was this box. Until college. The box is gone. Now, she had more freedom. She wanted to get the hell away from Texas. She wanted to be free, figure herself out. So she gets into Brian Mar College, which was a very serious place with a ton of pretentious but very smart students. And uh, away from the watchful eye from her parents, she decides she's no longer religious and she starts dating a lot more. And she had a type. She liked skeptical guys, guys that were almost borderline inappropriate, the ones that would blurt out in a group of religious people. If God is real, then why? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so she's really had a, had a moment there. Yeah, and it's, you know, which is fine. I love when people ask questions, but if you, if we went to a church because, I don't know, someone's having a wedding there, and you said, if God is real, then what? <laughs> I would die. I'd be mortified. Wow. So, I mean, I don't know. Holly just really gravitated towards guys like that. She started changing too. She started accepting sex before marriage, drugs, rock music, politics. She said that college was the first time she ever even thought about civil rights. She realized the oppressive segregation and racism that was still raging at her hometown, and she was mortified. Some people think that it was like Holly's world turned upside down in college. She had a culture shock which made her retreat even more. She started spending more time in her room. Her friends said that she started exclusively only dressing in black. She was afraid to go out to eat. She only ate in her room. She was developing potentially a, a, just, a just a disordered relationship with food. Holly's boyfriend at the time, Richard, said that Holly just seemed super eager to lose her virginity. It was almost like a fixation, like she needed to do this to get rid of her old self. And when she finally did lose her virginity, she was not fixated anymore. While back home in Texas one day, Holly leaves Richard and starts dating a new guy. And he was a horrible person. He physically abused her. And her friend said that Holly would be seen with bruises everywhere, but she was incredibly soft-hearted. She said, and I quote, he could hurt her and then cry about it. And she probably would try to embrace him and comfort him. Like that kind of thing. So thankfully, the relationship ends. She goes back to school and that's when she falls pregnant. And she's not ready to have a child. She went through her first abortion in the 60s, which, I mean, even now, it's not an easy process to get an abortion. And it was even harder then. The social shame, the stigma, the fact that her parents were religious. She really was alone in this entire emotional process with no support system or anything. She spent most of her time reading science fiction, fantasy. She loved it. She read a lot. Then she got in another relationship with a guy named Alan, and she just hated being tied down. That was the thing. Like, she would just suddenly drop him and have a short-lived, passionate affair out of nowhere. Holly's friends even said she was really casual about her sex life. It's almost like it was a status symbol for her. I, I mean, I don't know if she was trying to shock us or if she was telling me these things to validate it for herself, or I don't even know why she was telling me these things. She also seemed to be fascinated with a Jewish man. I don't think it was conscious. I don't think like she sought out Jewish men. I don't think she had like a fetish per se, but maybe it had to do with the fact that her parents were deeply Christian. They were incredibly religious. This was like her act of rebellion almost. After leaving college without graduating, Holly headed to Israel, potentially because of her, I don't know if I can say love, her attraction, her, I don't know, for Jewish men. So in Israel, she's 24 and she finds this 17-year-old and she starts dating him, which like... Age gap is not okay. They move in together. They start doing their thing. And she just was a really sexual person. That's what everybody says. She would cheat on a lot of her boyfriends because she was, she just had this very open attitude towards sex. 
Anyways, she goes back to Philadelphia, and within a few months, she changed her life by walking into a restaurant for lunch when a bearded man with a ponytail asks her for her birthday. He wanted to know her astrological chart. That man was Ira Einhorn, the unicorn. And their relationship went zero to 60 faster than a race car. It was a lot. They move in together within 10 days of knowing each other. And it all started with a bang. Holly was very insecure at the time. She wanted attention and validation from her partners. Meanwhile, Ira was perfect for this role. I mean, only superficially, of course. He loved to lay it down thick when he wanted to impress a new girlfriend. When he wanted to woo someone. The first few times that they had sex, it lasted hours with this mutual desire to please. Ira felt like Holly was different. He even dropped a few girlfriends just to spend more time with her. Not all of his girlfriends, of course, but a few. He never really believed in monogamy. If he did, he, he might have wanted to be in a relationship with Holly. She was just his type. She was thin, blonde, open-minded, and she was quiet, shy. That meant that Ira could talk on and on about his self-proclaimed genius philosophies, and she wouldn't interrupt him. She wouldn't even feel the need to tell him how she was feeling or how he was wrong or how she disagreed. It would just be him and his voice echoing in the room. There was a ton of sexual chemistry, which can be summed up by Ira's poem. He, he wrote a poem titled Holly Maddox. And the entire poem was a single line. It said, her asshole has been occupied by the penis of a Chinese lion. I'm sorry. Your eyes just <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah. Really? Her asshole has been occupied by the penis of a Chinese lion. And they say romance is dead. I think Holly probably felt the tension and the problems first. The fact that Ira was eight years older and the fact that he had the same domineering personality as her dad, she felt patronized. She felt trapped again. And she was she was kind of fighting with herself. Holly was torn. On one hand, she just wasn't someone to bow her head and take whatever someone threw at her. On the other hand, she was still insecure and she lacked the confidence to know her worth. So Holly would tell her friends, I'm just flattered a guy like him likes me. I mean, the unicorn is interested in little old me. She felt honored to be dating the unicorn, which is never a good way to start a relationship. And so as their relationship progresses, Ira continues to be the larger than life unicorn and Holly, I mean, she would never want to admit this, but she kind of settled into a shadow. She was the supporting role. Holly's friend said, yeah, there's no doubt about knowing her. I mean, even the beginning of that relationship, he was dominating her in an unhealthy way. And she was she was depending on him in an unhealthy way. She was like a planet revolving around Ira. Holly even agreed to an open relationship. Ira quickly lost his resolve to be somewhat monogamous with Holly. And so he's out there just seeing as many women as he can on the side. And Holly was free to do the same, technically, but she didn't because Ira would conveniently have these nightmares. He'd wake up, Holly, Holly, oh my God, are you here? Oh, I had this dream where you were kidnapped by this strange guy who was picking you up. You were going to go have sex with him, but then he killed you, dismembered you, and put you in like 25 different FedEx boxes. That's crazy. You know what they say about dreams? It's going to happen. So I suggest you stay away from all men from now on except for me, and I will protect you from them. I'm going to keep you safe. Maybe their relationship could have been better if she could have seen other people too because Holly never orgasmed with Ira. I mean, I would be tense too, okay? She tried to talk to him about it and he told her it's a her problem. He actually made her feel bad that he couldn't find the clitoris. And after these conversations, Ira would withhold emotional support. Even though he knew that Holly was an emotional person, he withheld it just to hurt her on purpose. Now, Ira would drag her to these group seances. 
and he was obsessed with the paranormal. One by one, the group described what they were visualizing, who they were talking to. When it was Holly's turn, her voice at first was weak, but it started getting stronger and stronger, and she was actively participating. Her, her voice was gaining confidence, and others were curious, like, ooh, what is she saying? Ira noticed this, and he rudely interrupted her and began mocking her. Nah, you're so dumb. That's dumb, you know that, right? You're stupid. That's in your head, Holly. It's not real, you idiot. In front of everyone. And Holly was devastated. She felt dumb. She felt embarrassed. She felt like an idiot. But the truth is, Ira just could not handle not being the center of attention for like two whole seconds. I mean, imagine how toxic this type of relationship is. The two would break up, and when Holly finally started finding her own ground, she would start dating around again. Ira would spend every waking minute, every last shred of energy to try and win her back. That was his one and only focus. And just to give you a clear picture of the relationship, I mean, I feel like this event explains it so well. When Holly introduced Ira to her parents, I mean, already without even meeting Ira, her parents were upset. Their once conservative prim and proper daughter is now dating a hippie. No, not just a hippie, but the hippie of the hippies, the fucking unicorn. But they're like, okay, well, we got to give him a chance, right? And it's almost as if Ira walked in that front door to make sure that her parents hated him. That was his mission. When he walked through that door, he didn't say hi. He looked around with a smirk on his face and said, oh, well, now I can see why Holly's a casual housekeeper, implying that they're all not neat. What? And she never learned how to clean. Anyway, do you guys have a phone I can use? I need to call my mom. Okay, not great, but not unsalvageable. They were there a few, for a few days. Maybe it's going to get better. But Iris stayed in bed most of the time. He only came out of the room to eat the meals prepared by Holly's parents. So Fred, the dad, would sit at the head of the table and he would start carving the roast to pass around the table. Now, before the whole family can be served... Ira had not only gobbled down his entire plate, but started poking at the roast with his fork to get seconds. Fred couldn't even, didn't even have the chance to say grace yet, which Ira ate through the blessing. Listen, I'm not religious, but if you're feeding me and you want to pray in your house, meditate, whatever it is before we eat, I will respectfully close my eyes or sit there listening to you, whatever you want me to do. But he just sat there chomping on the roast. Once everyone started eating, Ira got up, went to the living room, that's attached to the dining area, turns on the TV, full volume, drags a chair up right in front of the TV, so close to it that he could put his feet up on the TV, which he did. And he just starts watching TV while the rest of the family started their dinner. Holly's parents couldn't help but feel that he straight up wanted to piss them off to the point where they would throw him out of the house because that would put their Holly in a situation where she would have to choose between him and her parents. And she would most likely choose him. He wanted her to be isolated from her family. Now, it didn't work because the Maddoxes, they were smarter than that. And he resented them. He resented them for the fact that he couldn't get Holly completely away from her family. They were just really shocked to see Holly like that, though. Ira would bark orders at her, brush my hair. And she would get up and do it without any complaints. And when they left, Ira handed Holly all the heavy bags and the suitcases to carry to the car. And he only brought one tiny little bag out. Now, Holly's mom said he had Holly so convinced that she was nothing, that she was just so stupid, that she didn't even have enough sense to go around the block unless he was nice enough to lead the way. That's how he made her feel. So back in Philadelphia, Holly would wake up at five in the morning to go work at a bakery, come home, cook, clean, and Ira would constantly yell at her, insult her, make her feel small, made her cry, and then she felt a pit in her stomach. She had missed her period. So she freaked out, and the previous time she was pregnant, she had to get a traumatic abortion. I mean, it was hard, draining, emotionally, physically, everything. 
but she would have to go through it again. Because Ira was very clear with her. He wanted nothing to do with kids. And if she was pregnant, he didn't want to be involved in any capacity. Holly had her second abortion, January 1974. Ira was in the waiting room reading newspapers, and that was the extent of his support. Actually, he did nothing to support her afterwards. In fact, he made it worse by saying, thank God you didn't have the baby. I want a real full woman to have a child with, not you. The relationship was downhill from there. Holly decided that they needed a break. She was going to go to California. He was going to go to Europe. And this would be their time to explore life without each other, sleep with other people, see if they wanted to even keep going. So while in Europe, Ira's flirting with every pretty woman he sees, but he just couldn't stop thinking about Holly. He wrote about how he wanted a real woman in his life like Holly, how she was the only thing on his mind. The thought of her with other men made him feel queasy. He called her 7,000 miles away in California and he said, Holly, I miss you. Are you sleeping with other men? I mean, yeah, I'm just having fun with it. Oh, no, no. Whatever you're doing, it's disastrous. It's disastrous sexual things. Stop doing that. He did not like what he was hearing, but Holly was doing great. She was taking time away from Ira to be on her own, which was probably the best thing she could do for herself. She was free to explore herself, gain confidence. I mean, sex was just always this taboo thing in her life, and now she's getting more comfortable with voicing her desires, with orgasming, and communicating her pleasure. It wasn't just all sexual, though. She's making new friends. She did new jobs like massaging and reading horoscopes. She became more open, friendly. She liked connecting with people until she gets a letter from European Ira. He had a confession to make. He said, by chance, I was visiting a woman that I had a fling with before I met you. And she lives in Europe and I went to go visit her. And the woman had a child there. The child was mine. I'm a father. And the child had the deepest blue eyes that I've ever seen. And seeing this child made me realize that I want a child with you, Holly. I never realized how, how much of a violation abortions are. But I understand it now. I get why it wasn't working out for us. But I want it to work now. I mean, the audacity, the way he treated her during the abortion, the harsh words that he said afterwards, and now he wants kids with her. At first, she's mad. But then she felt like this could only mean one thing, that he was in love with her, that he had changed and he was going to have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with her now. So she wrote in a letter to him, or about him rather, Ira is far more accessible now, probably humbler, less cruel, more in touch with, you know, love and making love for me. I'm sure he'll have changed much. I feel tenderness for him, a loosening of this tightness and, and the, the love he makes makes me realize that I feel equal and I just needed to know it. For not knowing has contributed so much to the emptiness and the fear. And I just feel more capable now. I can be a woman. He wants to keep physical check on my presence. He touches me more often than before. And he smiles and laughs without that horrific edge of before. I just feel more equal now. I feel less afraid of his image. We are more the same size now. And it's going to take long before I'll be able to experience love orgasmically. But to be free of that fear is such a relief. So Ira would hold her back in Philadelphia and he tells her he loves her, he needs her, and that she belongs to him. Who likes that? I just, I, it's got to be a thing because it's in books, it's in novels. And you know what? Sometimes I read it in a book and I'm like, oh, it's so hot. But I think if that really happened to me in real life, I'd be alarmed, no? Like a little bit of a red flag. I feel like you've only said it in like the most comical way possible. You belong to me. Oh my God. <laughs> exactly. Just like that. So hot. 
Now, I'm sure that she's not orgasming with him, but he's also nonstop cheating. And in order for them to be good, he just needed to read her journal. That's what he said to see that what, what to see what she was really up to in California. Holly was hesitant, but she believed him. She wanted to start fresh. No secrets. And he read the diary and he looked up angrily, face red. And he said, you will pay for that. I have no faith in you anymore. And just like that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you, what is it? Play stupid games? It wins stupid prizes. And their relationship reverted back to where it had been before all of this. I mean, even worse now. Holly went back to essentially being Ira's cook and maid, and he tore her down anytime she expressed any opinion. Her body dysmorphia worsened to the point where she became bulimic, and it got to the point where Holly sought out help from the form of peer counseling classes. So peer counseling was a movement that started in the 50s, and it's the theory that you don't have to be a certified therapist to hear someone out to give advice. So the idea is you get paired up with another person and um, you have a productive and therapeutic conversation. In groups of two, one person will assume the role of the therapist. You'll talk, then you'll switch. So Penny was Holly's partner and she said Holly always talked about Ira and it was always Ira pushing her to be or do something that she wasn't. Sometimes it had to do with sex and sexuality. Penny said, I got the impression that he wanted her to make love to other women while he watched. And it was just something that she wasn't comfortable doing. But she did it because she didn't want to lose him. I also get the impression that very early on, they had a very S&M relationship. I mean, not the chains and the bondage, but something more psychological. You know, he was very powerful and charismatic. And she had this waif-like, fairy-like quality to her. One time to the meetings, Holly brought baked bread and everyone thought it was so sweet because it's, it's not a potluck. Nobody is bringing anything. Nobody's required to bring anything. But Holly just kind of brought it with the attitude of, here's the only thing I can do. Here's my measly gift to the class. I know anyone can do this or buy this. I mean, it's stupid, but here's what I can do. Sorry. Later, con she confessed to Penny. Ira told her that she was nothing without him and all she was good for was baking bread. So Penny was worried that the relationship, if it wasn't already, was going to get physically abusive. And her fears were confirmed when Holly showed up with a bruise on her face. She had a lot of bruises. One time she showed up with a black eye. People said it was almost like Holly had this compulsion to be with him. She, she talked about how awful he made her feel. He made her feel like she was nothing and she had no value, but she kept going back. The couple went on a trip to Nova Scotia, and while they were staying at a farmhouse, Ira planned on doing a lot of reading and gardening, and it was supposed to ease their tension in the relationship. But they only fought more. It got so bad to the point that uh, Holly was, she ran off. She was like, I can't do this anymore. And she ran off, and Ira wrote in his journal, not about how bad he felt or how sorry he felt because her ED was getting really bad during this point, or how shitty of a person he was to push her to this edge. No, he said, I don't dig sexual abstinence. I find myself masturbating a lot. I don't like being in a place where I do not have adequate access to women. I would never have put myself in a situation like this by choice. And for that reason alone, I'm pissed off at Holly because she left. So he doesn't have someone to have sex with. But he still wrote her sweet letters trying to get her back. Holly had gone to Texas to cool off and be with her parents. She was just trying to figure out her life with the help of a married couple, Larry Liss and his wife. You see, the Lisses, they had an open relationship and Holly was sleeping with Larry. It was very sexual, but it was also a very deep emotional connection. Larry made it clear to her, though, that his wife came first and above all, she was his everything. But Holly was okay with this. The two of them would just spend hours talking and talking about life and everything. And Larry knew about Ira. 
He didn't like him. He was a horrible person. He once saw Ira yank Holly's arm to get her attention, and he yanked so hard, everyone was worried that her arm had come out of the socket. So after the newest fight, Holly stopped by to see Larry again, and she brought gifts. A little tiny paper mache frog that she made. It hung in the Lys's kitchen for over a year until late 1977. One of the legs fell out just by itself. And Larry wondered, what kind of sign was that? He would tell Holly about it next time he saw her. But he would never see her again. After enough letters, Holly and Ira were back together and they were going to reconnect back home in Philadelphia. And at first, things were going okay. Holly was trying to get her life together. She started cutting her hair, which Ira loved long hair. So this was really for, you know, having a little bit of identity. She started seeing a therapist. She went to Tai Chi classes. She went on a new diet to control her ED and her diabetes. She even got an early part of her inheritance to the tune of $50,000. I mean, with this money, she could financially be independent enough to leave Ira at any point. She started standing up to him over the little things. But it felt big for Holly because after four years of being abused, this was everything. After sex, she would look Ira in the eye and say, that was great, but I didn't feel any orgasmic energy. She started meeting with friends, having more heart-to-heart conversations. She started, you know, meeting with other people. And then it was hard to not revert back to their regular routine of fighting. Ira just kept yelling, yelling at her about everything, about her pancakes, everything. I mean, Holly had a few jobs, she had a few hobbies, she had a few friends, but her life still centered around Ira. Ira, on the other hand, was still becoming a bigger public figure. He gave speeches, attended gatherings, his life was around his work and all of his other girlfriends, and then it's Holly. Oh, and his new obsession. Ira became obsessed with being psychic. He wanted to talk nonstop about UFOs, quantum physics, conspiracy theories, paranormal activities, and apocalypses. This led to a lot of his original supporters just dis- distancing themselves because, you know, these people, they really cared about taking down capitalism and keeping the earth clean. And now he's doing a lot. And Ira used to be someone who was so hungry for knowledge. He would listen to people to see if there was something that he didn't know. But now... Now it seemed like he was just arrogant, high and mighty. He talked as if he knew everything that there was to learn and he was above everyone else. And for Ira's new vision of work, he wanted to spend five and a half months in Europe to learn more about psychic experiments while he was there. And he wanted Holly to come. And so she did. And almost immediately they start fighting and they break up. Holly finds another guy whom she calls a delightful Scott. And she wrote to her parents while she was in London. She said that she was having such a good time. She felt free. She felt like she was finally getting out of Ira's grasp. Like, what was wrong with her? She told them of her plans to get her own apartment when she gets back. She's about to be 30. She's going to start fresh. It was this new journey now. Holly's family, they were ecstatic. Even when the letters stopped, they didn't freak out. Holly was known to be busy with life, and she would write back when she had time. August turned to September, and then October 2nd was Holly's mom's birthday. That was a day Holly never missed. She always wrote a handwritten card wherever in the world she was. Nothing. On October 20th, they call Ira and say, hey, have you seen Holly? And he's like, oh, oh, yeah, we, we came back to Philadelphia after our Europe trip, and she left like three and a half weeks ago. She went to the store and just didn't come back. Actually, I was in the bathtub when she left. She said that she was going to go get milk. And she, she didn't leave, or she left, and uh, I called everybody that I knew. I checked with the police in the hospitals, but nobody knows anything. I mean, I talked to a friend of hers, and she told me not to worry, that I might not hear from her for a couple months. I don't know. Maybe she's just gone off to find herself. Oh, well, did Holly have any money with her when she left? Maybe a few dollars? Did she take anything else? No, not that I know of. 
I mean, the whole explanation was just bizarre and off. Liz called the police and they were not worried. They said, a flower child like Holly? I mean, she's probably off doing hippie things. She's not missing. No way. And even if we thought that she was missing, there's no indication of foul play. Holly's an adult. There's nothing we can do. So the Maddoxes, if the police weren't going to do anything, they contacted a PI, the former chief of the Tyler, Texas FBI Bureau, Bob Stevens, who now owns his own private practice. So Bob starts looking into where their daughter is, and he tries reaching out to Ira, and he is just not having it. In fact, he starts shit-talking the Maddoxes, and is like, oh, I think Holly ran away because her parents are so overbearing, and they're just crazy. But Bob's radars are going off, because why would Holly cut off all her friends, too? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. She was already pretty removed from her parents' grasp. So Bob reaches out to another FBI agent turned PI, Robert, and the two of them, they try their best looking for Holly. They were invested on this. Their family was worried sick, the Maddox family, and the two PIs, they're working hard, doing overtime. Meanwhile, Ira was unbothered. He didn't give a shit where Holly was. Maybe because he already knew. A full year passes, no word on Holly. But the PI had their big break when they found the delightful Scott that Holly had a relationship with before she went missing. His name was Saul, and he was now living in New York City, and he was doing well for himself. He was a good-looking guy. He owned multiple properties. He was financially comfortable. Anyway, Saul was familiar with Ira. Not just through Holly, but Saul's ex-wife had cheated on him with the unicorn. Yeah, small world. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all we know is that when Ira found out about them, he was pissed. He wrote to her about it, about how she was killing him. He was devastated and hurt, and all he wanted were kids with her. But, uh, and I quote, her sweetness was going to another, sucking another penis, licking another asshole. Anyway, Saul and Holly made it to New York City. They were trying to settle down together. They had this boat cruise that was coming up that they had planned. Holly wanted to get closure from Ira. So she goes to Philadelphia, meets with him for two days, comes back super upset. And she tells Saul, can we postpone the boat trip? I just, I want to, I want to emotionally get over this. And then I can, I can restart and we can have this fresh new life. It really seemed like Holly was completely out of Ira's gasp, grasp. But then they get a call that night. And Ira tells Saul, hey, you tell Holly to come see me right now or else all of her things, her clothes, her bank books, her checkbooks, her books, everything, the antique lace that she got from Europe, it's going to be on the street. Holly was upset. I mean, she knew that he was capable of this. So she tells Saul, I gotta go. I'll be right back. I love you. And we can go on our boat trip. Listen, I, I, I don't know why this guy has been able to push my buttons for this long. And she walked out the door. And that was the last time Saul ever saw Holly. Now, nobody knows what exactly happened on September 11th. But Ira would always insist Holly went off to a food co-op to live and never came back. But we do know that his life was kind of spiraling after this. He stopped going to all of these speeches and public gigs that he had planned he started writing in his journal about how it was difficult to get up he felt lonely he couldn't shake the depression he felt the loss of h very strongly depressingly overwhelming at times he said holly and ira fifth anniversary what a way to celebrate at my lowest ebb suicidal he would write an angel lingers in my mind much depressed a bit of wanting to end it all so it seems like he's, he's very upset over something and he keeps saying brooding over age, depression over age, but H is nowhere to be found. Holly is nowhere to be found. He wrote poems about Holly. He called it suicide or just last one for H. It took months, but by Christmas, Ira was back to normal and the PIs were more convinced that they were dealing with a homicide. They reached out to anybody that li- used to live in the same apartment building as Ira when Holly was alive and there was a guy named James. He said, oh, oh, that month? 
Oh yeah, that was a weird month. So repairmen were going from unit to unit to fix up the balconies. And the word on the block was Ira had padlocked his outside closet on the balcony. And he stood guard there just telling the repairmen not to touch it. I mean, the repairmen were going around telling everyone because it was just so strange. Wait, what? The lock to the balcony? Balcony closet. Mm. And usually during the summers, another weird thing is Ira lived in this building for seven years. During the summers, Ira would go on trips to Europe and normally he would sublet his apartment. But this time he didn't. So it's kind of weird. Like for seven years he did this and now this year he doesn't sublease it. That's weird. And then there was the smell. Yeah, the smell was coming out of his apartment. I mean, no amount of air freshener could hide it. Everybody just thought it was the smell of rotting wood. It just made the most sense. So the PIs give this to the police, who now had enough circumstantial evidence for a search warrant. And they walk in, and yes, they smelt it first. They broke into the porch closet, and there was this large trunk, four and a half feet long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet deep. And the police broke the lock, and the entire trunk was filled with foam, And there was something protruding out. A human hand, curled up and frozen still. The remains were partially mummified, dressed in shirt and slacks with long blonde hair. They turned to Ira, who was nonchalant. He had maintained his composure. And they said, we found the body, Ira. It looks like Holly. And he said, you found what you found. Do you want to tell us about it? Nope. Ira was taken into custody, which what the... What the heck? I don't know why, but I guess some guards liked him and they actually asked Ira questions about meditation techniques. Excuse me, what? He also claimed, I've been outspoken my entire life, but never have I been violent. I want to be very direct about this. I did not kill whoever was supposed to be in there. I am not a killer. I do not know if a body got in there. I don't know how, if there is a body in there. I don't even know if it's a body. Holly's autopsy showed that she had craniocerebral injuries in the brain and skull, which means someone hit her on the head from above with an instrument similar to the base of a lamp. The holes in the skull were so big that you couldn't even define how many times one area had been struck. There were at least 10 to 12 fractures, maybe more. This is no possibility of accidental death. Ira claimed it was a setup. He said, of course the CIA wants to take me out or kidnap me. I mean, think about it. I am a leader in the mind war. What we're trying to do is going to change the reality structure that we're living in. And of course, the CIA is after me. He went on to do an interview and he said, the two of us, we had hit each other before. I'm going to be honest. Holly and I, we were in love. We were in deep love, very deep. We were both intense people. But this, this is a time of testing. I try to learn from every situation. Now, I'm going to see if my friends believe in me. I think they do. I know that people will help. I know that people will refuse to believe what's being said. I mean, these people know me. They'll stand by me. I'm sure of it. Somehow, Ira was let out on bail. A supporter had paid it. Actually, a fascinating story. It was the wife of the heir to the Seagram Liquor Company. Charles Bronfman, that's his name. Was, his wife paid it. Yeah, I wonder if they were having an affair. I know. I mean, allegedly, don't sue me, Seagrams, but like, allegedly. She paid his bail. The unicorn was now free. He starts doing interviews and he said some bizarre things. He said, if I were guilty, it'd be a lot easier. I could plead insanity or something of that sort, but I'm innocent, so it's an impossible situation. I'm fine, believe it or not. My spirit is very high and I'm feeling very good. I mean, I'm looking at this situation as clearly as I possibly can. I'm not depressed in any way. I'm just looking at my options. He claimed if the public believed the prosecutors, it was all the CIA. They're already controlling the masses with brain control, mind control, tricking them into believing that I'm guilty. 
Ira already had a lot of supporters and it only grew because news came out. FBI came to the conclusion that there was not any blood or human protein in any of the floorboards in that apartment. So Ira told anyone who would listen, anyone can see that I'm a reasonably intelligent being, right? And if I would take the trouble to drain blood from a body, because that's the only way there's no blood on the floor. I mean, how am I going to hit our that many times not get blood anywhere. I certainly wouldn't put a body in the trunk of my apartment. I mean, I certainly wouldn't put it where I knew police were investigating and I knew that a PI was investigating. That doesn't make sense. So an interviewer asked, are you suggesting it would be impossible to drain a body of blood in the apartment and not get blood on anything? Yeah, I think so. I mean, how do you get blood out of a body? I I don't know how to drain blood from the body. Certainly, I'm bright enough to learn how to do anything, but that's not something I bother to learn about. I I can't tell you how it's done. I can't tell you how to drain a body from blood. The skull was supposedly fractured six to 12 times, multiple times. You can't tell me blood didn't squirt all over the place. And no matter how careful you are, you wouldn't be able to get all of it up. So this is not the crime scene. Exactly. Now, Ira felt free. He felt like his name had been cleared. He went out, got a new apartment, a 22-year-old girlfriend. She was very similar to Holly. She was the oldest of six kids from a conservative Republican family. She was the only one of her siblings to lead a progressive life with drugs, unconventional, I don't know, they said morality, but... She just was a free person. She just had an aversion to authority. She also happened to be 18 years younger. She just pretty much became a submissive maid after she moved in. And it's all because of Ira's manipulation. I'm not saying like, this is her, like this is him. Ira went on to spend all of his time working on a manuscript for a book, which is kind of funny because no publisher wanted it. They said, you know, the book would have been better if you were guilty. But like when you're innocent, it's not, it's not really sellable. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Books are crazy. The ironies of Yes. They were like, can you just like say you're guilty for the book? Cause then we'll buy it. But if not... Police are not listening, I promise. Yeah, because this is kind of boring, you know? (laughs) What? He did not seem to care that his trial was scheduled to start because he already had a plan. He needed to leave to Europe. He told his friends that he wasn't going to spend his life in jail. That was something he was sure about. So Ira and Jeanne, his girlfriend, went went apartment hunting in Dublin, which was allegedly financed by the Seagram heiress. What is going on? Yeah. And they said that Ireland was the perfect refuge. It was an English-speaking country that had no extradition treaty with the U.S. at the time. Meanwhile, Ira's trial goes cold for another five years. Ira spent most of his time in his fancy modern two-bedroom apartment in one of Dublin's best neighborhoods, reading, writing, having sex with tons of young girls, and he was constantly cheating on his girlfriend. After 16 years, Ira was finally tracked down in France where there is an extradition treaty. He was living in a farmhouse in the region Champagne. It took another four years to bring him back to the U.S. Meanwhile, the public debated. Iris supporters thought that he was being politically targeted, and how could he possibly receive a fair trial after all of this? Others were saying that the American justice system is so sick. I mean, think about it. Based on the offender, based on the defendant, some people go to jail for weed, and this guy murdered someone, and you just let him roam Europe free? willy-nilly anyway trial started in 2002 and he claimed to have been framed by the fbi or the cia nobody bought it he was found guilty after only two hours of deliberations he was sentenced to life without parole and he died in prison in 2020 at the age of 79 due to his heart problems and not covid i don't know why they made it a big deal to be like not covid you didn't die of covid he spent almost 18 years in prison for the murder of holly maddox I would say that's not nearly enough. Yeah, he lived such a... Great life. Yeah. 
traveling around Europe, <sighs> just living the life. I this story gets me angry. Yeah. I mean, just, and I think this is one of those questions. People can do good, but how much can you separate art and impact versus who the person is? Mm. Because he did do good. He did, you know, make Earth Day a big thing in Philadelphia. Yeah, you know, but, but no, you can't just kill people exactly. and say I did this. Yeah, but some people still supported him. Wow, so he's known as the unicorn yeah. killer. Actually, the one of the Vidoc guys ha- helped track down the unicorn killer. Wow. Yeah, Frank made the facial reconstruction. Wow. I believe, yeah. Help track it. down the unicorn killer. So, so many connections in this one, I tell you. Let me know. What are your thoughts? And make sure to stay tuned on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.